Chapter 13 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins, Volume 2, by Robert Paltick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Having now fully entered into the spirit of the business with my own good liking, I was determined to push it vigorously or perish in the attempt. Have I, says I, so large a field before me now to manifest my Maker in to a whole nation and under his own call, and to fulfill their own prediction too? And shall I shrink at the possible danger? Or may there not rather be no probability of danger in it? The nation is in distress, the readier, therefore, to try any remedy for help. Their image has stood idle two hundred years. There has been an old prophecy, or at least, if not true, as firmly believed to be true as if it was so. And this, in regard to the people, answers in all respects as well. But why should it not be true? It is better attested by the frequent repetition from the original delivery to this time than are many traditions I have heard of amongst us Christians, which have come out spick and span new from the repositories of the learned, of twelve or fifteen hundred years old, little the worse for lying by, though they are not pretended to have seen light all that time, and are undoubted verities the moment they receive the grand sanction. Then, if any means but fraud or force can gain so large a territory to the truth, and I am the only person can introduce it, shall not I endeavor it? Yes, surely, but I am not excluded all advantages neither, for all the works of providence are brought to pass by appointed means, and indeed, were it otherwise, what could we call providence? For a preemptory fiat, and it is over, may work a miracle, it is true, but will not exhibit the proceedings of providence. Therefore let me consider, in a prudential way, how to proceed to the execution of what I am to set about, and guide me, Providence, I beseech you, to the end. Upon the best deliberation I could take, I came to the following resolutions. First, to insist on the abolition of the image worship, and to introduce true religion by the fittest means I could find opportunity for. Secondly, as the revolters had been one people with those I would serve, and had this prediction amongst them too, and were interested in it, in hopes of its distant accomplishment, so if they came properly to the knowledge that the person predicted of had appeared, and was ready for execution of his purposes, it might stagger their fidelity to their new master, and therefore I would find means to let them know it. Thirdly, that I would not march till I was in condition not easily to be repulsed, for that would break both the hopes and hearts of my party, and destroy my religious scheme, and therefore I would get some of my cannon. Fourthly, that I would go to war in my flying chair, and train up a guard for my person with pistols and cutlasses. These resolutions I kept to myself till the Musharat was over, to see first how matters would turn out there. 
Whilst I waited for the approaching Musharat, my son Timothy and daughter Hallie Carney paid their duties to me. It is strange how soon young minds are tainted by bad company. I found them both very glad to see me, for everybody, they said, told them I was to be their deliverer. They had both got the prophecy by heart and mentioned the image with all the affection of natural subjects. The moment Tommy spoke of it to me, Hold, says I, young man, what's become of those good principles I took so much pains to ground you in? Has all my concern for your salvation been thrown away upon you? Are you become a reprobate? What? An apostate from the faith you inherited by birthright? Is the God I have so often declared to you a wooden one? Answer me, or never see my face more. The child was extremely confounded to see me look so severe, and hear me speak so harsh to him. Indeed, father, says he, I did not willingly offend or design to show any particular regard to the image, for, thanks to you, I have none. But what I said was only the common discourse in everybody's mouth. I meant neither good nor harm by it. Tommy, says I, it is a great fault to run into an error, though in company of multitudes, and where a person's principle is sound at bottom and founded upon reason, no numbers ought to shake it. You are young, therefore hearken to me, and you, Halley Carney, whatever you shall see done by the people of this country, in the worship of this idol, don't you imitate it, don't you join in it. Keep the sound lessons I have preached to you in mind, and upon every attempt of the ragans or any other to draw you aside to their worship, or even to speak or act the least thing in praise of this idol, think of me and my words. Pay your adoration to the Supreme Father of Spirits only, and to no wooden, stone, or earthen deity whatsoever." The children wept very heartily, and both promised me to remember and to do as I had taught them. Being now in my oval chamber and alone with my children, I had a mind to be informed of some things I was almost ashamed to ask Quilly. Tommy, says I, what sort of fire do they keep in these globes, and what are they made of? Daddy, says he, yonder is the man shifting them, you may go and see. Being very curious to see how he did it, I went to him. As I came near him, he seemed to have something all afire on his arm. What has the man got there, says I? Only Suikos, says Tommy. By this time I came up to him. Friend, says I, what are you about? Shifting the Suikos, sir, says he, to feed them. What oil do you feed with, says I? Oil, says he, they won't eat oil, that would kill them all. Why, says I, my lamp is fed with oil. Tommy could scarce forbear laughing himself, but for fear the servant should do so too, pulled me by the sleeve and desired me to say no more. So turning away with him, Daddy, says he, it is not oil that gives this light, but Suikos, 
a living creature. He has got his basket full and is taking the old ones out to feed them and putting new ones in. They shift them every half day and feed them. What, says I, are all these infinite number of globes I see living creatures? No, says he, the globes are only the transparent shell of a bot, like our calabashes. The light comes from the suico within. Has that man, says I, got any of them? Yes, says he, you may see them, the king and the colams, and indeed every man of note has a place to breed and feed them in. Pray, let us go see them, says I, for that is a curiosity indeed. Tommy desired the man to show me the suicos, so he set down his basket, which was a very beautiful resemblance of a common higgler's basket, with a handle in the middle and a division under it, with flaps on each side to lift up and down. It was made of straw-colored small twigs, neatly compacted, but so light as scarce to be of any weight. Opening one of the lids, I could make very little distinction of substances, the bottom seeming all over of a white color. I looked surprised at the light. The man took out one and would have put it into my hand, but perceiving me shy of it, he assured me it was one of the most innocent things in the world. I then took it, and surveying it, it felt to my touch as smooth and cold as a piece of ice. It was about as long as a large lobworm, but much thicker. The man, seeing me admire the brightness of its color, told me it had done its duty and was going to be fed, but those which were going upon duty were much clearer. And then, opening the other lid, those appeared far exceeding the others in brightness and thickness too. I asked what he fed them with. He said, leaves and fruit, but grass, when he could get it, which was not often they were very fond of. Having dismissed my children, I sent for Nazgig to gain some intelligence I wanted to be informed of. The moment I saw him, it came into my mind to inquire after my new filgaze. He said the king granted my request at the first word. I told him then he had saved his honor with me, and I was obliged to him. But, says I, you told me my bearers should be free too. They are so, says he. Then there is one thing I want, says I, and that is to see the second bearer on my right hand, who came through without shifting. I have a fancy for that fellow, says I, to be about my person. I like him, and if you can give him a good word, I should be glad to treat with him about it. My friend Peter, says he, you are a man of penetration, though it ill becomes me to say so in regard of persons. But I can say that for him, if he likes you as well as you seem to like him, he is the trustiest fellow in the world. But as he knows his own worth, he would not be so to everybody. I can tell you that. I don't fear his disliking me, says I, for I make it my maxim to do as I would be done by, and if he is a man of honor, as you seem to say, he would do the same, and we shall be soon agreed. 
But, says Nazgig, it being now the fourth day since he was freed, he may be gone home, perhaps, for he is not of our country, but of Mount Alco. If Quilly can find him, he will come. So he ordered Quilly to send for Malik of Mount Alco, with orders to come to me. We descended from one discourse to another, and at length came to King Georgetti's affairs, when Nazgig, giving a sigh, Ah, Peter, says he, we shall loiter away our time here till the enemy are upon our backs. There is venom in the grass. I wish my good master is not betrayed. By whom, says I? By those he little suspects, says he. Why, says I, they tell me you are much in his favor. If so, why do you suffer it? I believe, says Nazgig, I am in his favor, and may continue in it, if I will join in measures to ruin him. But else I shall soon be out of it. You tell me riddles, says I. These things, says he, a man talks with his head in his teeth. There is danger in them, Peter, there is danger. You don't suspect me, says I, do you? No, says he, I know your soul too well. But there are three persons in these dominions who will never let my master rest till out of his throne or in Hoximo. I am but lately in favor, but have made as many observations, perhaps, as those who have been longer about the king. Nazgig, says I, your concern proceeds from an honest heart. Don't stifle what you have to say. If I can counsel you with safety, I'll do it. If not, I'll tell you so. Peter, says he, Georgetti was the only son of a well-beloved father and ascended his throne ten years ago on his decease. But Harlokin, the prince of the revolters, whose head is never idle, finding that whispers and base stories spread about, did not hurt Georgetti or withdraw his subjects' affections, has tried a means to make him undo himself. As how, says I, why, said he, by closely playing his game, he has got one of his relations into the king's service, than whom he could never have chosen a fitter instrument. He, by degrees, feeding the king's humor and promising mountains, has pushed into the best places into the kingdom. His name is Barbarsa, a most insolent man who has had the assurance to corrupt the king's mistress and has prevailed and brought her over to his interest. Oh, perfidy, says I, is it possible? Yes, says he, and more than that, has drawn in till now an honest man called Nicor, and it has been agreed between them to protract this war, till by their stratagems in procuring the revolt of Gowingrunt, a very large and populous province, and now the barrier between us and the rebels, and two or three more places, they shall have persuaded Georgetti to fly, and then Barbarsa is to be king, and Jakombors his queen. A union is then to be struck between him and Harlokin, and peace made by restoring some of the surrendered provinces, and upon the death of the first of them, or their issue childless, the survivor or his issue is to take the whole. They laugh at your uniting the dominions and the old prediction.
These, said I, Nazgig, are serious things, and, as you say, are not lightly to be talked of. But, Nazgig, know this, he that conceals them is a traitor. Can you prove this? I have heard them say so, says Nazgig. How, says I, and not discover it? I am as anxious for that as you can be, says he, but for me to be cashiered, slit, and sent to Kreisdorp only for meaning well, without power to perfect my good intentions, where will be the benefit to my master or me? When and where did you hear this, says I? Several and several times, says he, in my own bed. In your own bed, says I? I tell you, says he, it so happens that when I rest at the palace, as I am bound to do when on duty, there is a particular bed for me. Now, as the whole palace is cut out of one solid rock, though Jakombors' apartment at the entrance is a prodigious distance from the entrance to mine, yet my bed and one in an inner apartment of hers stand close together, the partition, indeed, is stone, but either from the thinness of it or some flaw in it I have not yet discovered, I can plainly hear every word that is spoken. And there it is, in their hours of dalliance, when they use this bed, that I hear what I have now told you. Say nothing of it, says I, but leave the issue to me." By this time the messenger returned with Malik, and he and I soon agreeing, I took him into my service. I went to bed as usual, but could get no rest, Nazgig's story engrossing my whole attention. I was resolved, however, to be better informed before I acquainted the king of it. But rising pretty early next morning, the king came into my chamber, leaning upon Barbarsa, to tell me that he had received an express that Gowingrunt had revolted. Peter, says he, behold, a distressed monarch, nay, an undone monarch. Great sir, says Barbarsa, you afflict yourself too much. Here is Mr. Peter, come to assist you, and he will settle all your concerns. Never fear. I eyed the man, and, though prejudice may hang an honest person, found him a villain in his heart, for even while he was forcing a feeling tone of affliction, he was staring at my laced hat and feather that lay on the seat, by which I was sure nothing could be at a greater distance than his heart and tongue. His sham concern put me within a moment of seizing him in the king's presence, but his majesty, at that instant speaking, diverted me. Before the king left me, I told him, having certain propositions to make to the Musharat next day, it was possible they might require time to consider them. Wherefore, it would be proper, at this critical time, to let them meet every other day, business or none, till this affair was over. The king ordered Barbarsa to see to it, and then we parted. End of chapter 13